This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show. And I've got to say, you guys have already come in and Dan and I have already been talking way off the page. I think we've talked (laughs) for at least 15 minutes already and it's already been a raucous conversation. So I'm really excited. Dan, how's it going? Definitely. Uh, not bad, Matthew. Uh, happy to be here again. And and yeah, you can tell, uh, should have hit record a little earlier because we've got a lot to say about this book, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, we're going to be talking about Fearful Symmetry tonight. And yeah, I think we do have a lot to talk about with this book. Uh, and it'll be interesting conversation sometimes there are things that we say that we don't always want on the record. That's why we're on the other side of the page. Um, (laughs) But uh, maybe if you guys really, really bug us, we'll do completely uncensored, maybe just for the patron members. So, Ooh, that's not a bad idea at all. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good idea. (laughs) Well, we don't have a ton of news, but we did have a brand new photo comic from John Byrne that came out. Dan and we both got a chance to read it and it's called Hollow Man and really features uh, our favorite Vulcan and no I'm not talking about Tuvok I'm talking about Spock and uh, what did you end up thinking of this one? Well Matthew um, yeah I read this one just before we started recording here and uh, I do have to say uh, I enjoyed it for the most part uh, it was kind of a more um uh, not quite as action-packed necessarily as they have been, with a little bit of action there, but uh, definitely a little bit more contemplative story, a little bit more focused on just Spock. And one thing that kind of struck me as I was reading this was one of the original things that John Byrne said about these was that they would be kind of like lost episodes. And if nothing else, this really felt like it could have been an episode of the original series had it gone, you know, into season four or five or something like that. Uh, it was it was a nice, tightly written adventure. Uh, didn't really blow me away, but uh, made some interesting use of aspects of the series that I, I really enjoyed. What was really interesting about it, that whole idea of like lost episodes, it always strikes me as funny that these comics are connecting to all these old episodes, and yet TOS rarely ever connects to itself. Mm-hmm. So I'm always a little surprised when they're, you know, using Harry Mudd or other characters from other episodes and kind of continuing those stories because that's not what TOS did. So I th- in some ways, I think. Sometimes the mark is kind of missed because of that, because Mm -hmm. they're relying too heavily on creating a new story with a character you've already seen. And part of that is probably because of the art you have to work with. Mm -hmm. But it is also quite clear that they just take pictures of new people and put them in here for characters (laughs) you've never seen before. So it's, it's not as though it's a complete one for one reworking of something that already exists. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was for me something that stood out I think really for the the first time so much with this comic I was just struck by that idea is like 
Star Trek didn't really do this. You know, mm. it, it didn't really tell stories that connected, at least in the original series, very often, very, very few times would they kind of reference something that had happened in the past. Now, I like that because I'm used to it as like the literary fan, but the actual show, that stuff didn't really start happening until the films. Right. I like to imagine, and I mean, you know, this is partially me <laughs> taking my modern television sensibility and translating it back to the original series that I loved. You know, I like to imagine that if it had gone a few more seasons, we might have seen more stuff like this. But uh, yeah, no, I, that's totally granted that, you know, Star Trek didn't really do this kind of thing. Um, but, it, you know, it's kind of welcome here because you can take characters that you're familiar with and spin them off in interesting directions. Uh, I kind of almost got a, a man trap vibe, but for Spock with this one, if that makes sense. Did you kind of feel that as well? Yeah, I think that's a good comparison for sure. And, um, you know, I I was trying to think about how I really wanted to talk about this issue because I feel like if we talk about it too in depth, it, it just gives too much of the storyline and, and the surprise of the people we're going to run into in the comic. Uh, but yeah, I, I think what I want to say is that it's heavily based upon Spock and a story and a character that connects with him from a previous episode. And the story separates Spock from the main crew going on his own. And at the same time, it does a great job of building that Spock, Kirk, and McCoy relationship, while at the same time building Spock's relationship with somebody like, say, Ohura, which mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting as well. So uh, those are the strong points to this comic without getting too detail-y, because I, I really don't think that this comic works as well if if we just spoil it all for you. I think it's better to... Uh, get the surprise of the characters that show up. Um, but uh, what was there anything, you know, you said it was okay. Was there anything that was a standout to you or you were just like, uh, yeah, with this one, I mean, it was just kind of all generally okay. Um, I did like. <laughs> we're going to start having the generally okay stamp. It's from Canada. <laughs> yeah, it's generally okay. Uh, I really, uh, I just want to be Canadian about it, and uh, I don't really want to, like, I, I don't want to offend anyone, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I love mean, that, Dan. That's definitely true. <laughs> but, oh, um, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, kind of some of my usual complaints come in here. Uh, a lot of the more outlandish uh, settings just really do not <laughs> look realistic at all. Uh, so that detracts from it. Uh, some of the things that I really liked were um, this particular character that we run into who's familiar from Spock's past. Uh, the shots of this person are really well done. You know, they there's not a lot to work from. Uh, and I think I could be wrong, but it looks like a few of the shots were probably taken from uh, other things that this actor has been in um, throughout her career <laughs> still trying not to give away who it is here but probably have by now um but you know it, it's i i like a lot of that work i like a lot of the work that's gone into this to make the people look like they fit in the situations they're in but the environments are still they're, they're really distracting i hate to say that and i hate to kind of pick on that but you know it's it's hard to get immersed when some of it looks not good <laughs> I do feel like that the backgrounds and things that the Photoshop work could be done better. And specifically, like, there's a character that you can tell is not from the original series. It's it's something that's been photographed and tried to be manipulated to look like it's from the original. And you can just tell. And, and those things really do pull me out of the story. So I am with you. I, I think all of that together... When a majority of the story is creating these new sets and new things like that, they just don't hold up. They, I mean, that ship that Spock is on, the the passenger liner, I, mm -hmm. it it looks totally fake. It looks like CGI from the first season of Babylon Five. I mean, it's just not good. Mm -hmm. And what we can do today with a computer is just fantastic. I mean, you know. 
look at Tobias Richter and, and the, the work that he does. And, you know, you don't even need something that amazing for a comic. You just need something that looks as good as the original Enterprise model. Mm-hmm. That's not that hard to do. So, um, yeah, yeah it, all in all, this is a story that I think is is good for the character bits. But the rest of it, I, I really do agree with you, Dan. I, I find to be quite lackluster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the character bits. I, I do have to say, you know, John Byrne, there's really no one else who has a better handle on how these characters interact with each other than he does. Uh, and I really loved, there's kind of a counterpoint to um, when McCoy calls Spock the best first officer in the fleet in an episode of the original Star Trek, you know, that kind of gets flipped around in this one. And, you know, McCoy overhears Spock saying something really great about him. So, it's, you know, these little character moments that really show John Byrne knows his Trek. So, you know, no complaints about the story and the, uh, the character work for sure. Uh, it's just the visual stuff's a little hard to get through, unfortunately. But uh, the story itself, I mean, you know, he knows his characters and it's always great, always a lot of fun to read. No, that's for sure. And and I think in the end, the highlight of most of these comics has been the fun of getting to feel like you're back in a TOS episode with these characters. And yeah, John Byrne, he knows the dialogue. He understands the way to place a character, the quip to give from a character, all of those things I, I really do enjoy. So um, this might not be the strongest one, but it's it's definitely not the worst one either. So it's just kind of somewhere in the middle for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, that's okay. It, not every comic issue is a winner. Uh, being a comic reader for a while now, I'm pretty used to that. It just It just happens, so... Well, before we do dive into talking about Fierce Hole Symmetry, we want to remind everybody that Literary Treks is part of the Trek FM network. You can find all of our shows on iTunes at iTunes.com. You can also find us on the web at Trek.fm. We have 20 different shows on the network. We have special feeds, everything revolving around Star Trek and so much more. I mean, literally have, I think, just about every part of Star Trek covered these days plus everything beyond that with the 602 Club. So join us at Trek FM. We hope you will and check out all the great content we have for you. You can also find us on Twitter at Trek FM or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. You can contact the show anytime. Go to trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show, choose Literary Treks, and that email will come to me and Dan, and we'll be able to respond to you and maybe even read it on the show, too. And, of course, we'd love to get a voicemail from you, so go to the sidebar on the show page at trek.fm, or you can go to speedpipe.com slash trek.fm as well. Well, Dan, I cannot believe the fact that we are almost done with the Deep Space Nine relaunch. Now couple of notes about that there are a few books that we will have missed in the overall arc we will not have done the left hand of destiny duology we will not have done the lives of dax and we will Mm -hmm. not have done most likely by the end of the year we're not sure yet but the never-ending sacrifice so there are still a few books left but the main arc we only have two books left, and one of them we're going to talk about tonight, and that is Fearful Symmetry. So, Yeah, pretty exciting. I mean, you know, the penultimate book in this arc. You know, we're really closing in on the end here. Uh, you know, before we get to David R. George III's Ascendance coming at the end of December. So, yeah, it's really great that we're able to kind of get these in here and get them uh, get, get us all caught up before uh, we finally see how this storyline ends up wrapping itself up well and what's interesting here too is i i don't think any of us if you were originally reading the books you weren't expecting soul key obviously to be the last one because Mm -hmm. they were just building up this arc into something really massive with the ascendance and so i just i remember being so invested in this time period you know reading these books and really enjoying and trying to get as much out of it as good as you know obviously this was the only Deep Space Nine I was getting anymore. And so 
It's also strange, too, because this is... Oh, gosh, uh, this is over two years now of literary treks, and uh, we really have gotten serious in, in trying to finish the Deep Space Nine relaunch, and personally, I just feel like I've accomplished something. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm actually really excited about this, because in some ways, I feel like the show is free to do something different now. Like, we have a whole bunch of other things that we can talk about, and... You know, other places, other series to talk about, which I'm I'm really excited to get into. And um, maybe some more opportunities just to do one-off books as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's so much more to come in uh, 2016 for fans. And, and so I hope you'll stick with us. But, Dan, this was an interesting book because there was a kind of a weird gimmick about this one. Mm-hmm. And that was that this was a flip book. Which meant that you had to flip the book in the middle <laughs> of reading it? Yeah. I mean, you know, okay. So the book fundamentally, of course, is about two characters, uh, Kira Norris and Ileana Gamor, her Cardassian Obsidian Order operative double person. Uh, you know, watch Deep Space Nine. You'll get it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, so... You know, I you know, kudos to Pocket Books for kind of trying to do something interesting and different here. Uh, you know, the symmetry of the book and and the the two halves of it kind of mirror the story. In that, in a lot of ways, Kira and Gamora's lives mirror each other, and and they have this kind of weird symmetry going on, not just in how they look, but in some of their experiences and and that sort of thing. So you know, like I said, kudos to them for trying something different. Does it work? Was it worth doing this kind of weird gimmicky book thing? I don't know. <laughs> uh, what did you think of that kind of idea of of having to flip the book around and, and read part B uh, from the opposite part side? <laughs> um, well, what was interesting about it, Dan, is the fact that it, it, I mean, it, it, it was weird, too, because honestly, you could have read either side first mm-hmm. it, it didn't it honestly didn't matter um the way the book is put in ebook format the first side is the quote-unquote present day which mm-hmm. all the stuff that's happening on deep space nine now so what's happening now with air what's quotes. happening now sue <laughs> uh so this is now <laughs> that so was this then. is this is so now, now Okay, that's exactly <laughs> the feeling, though. So uh, when you're when you're talking about these books, and and so it was strange because it, it it again it didn't matter what order you read them in, really, because and honestly, I had to ask you about this. Do you think it would have been better to have the Ileana Gamor story? You have people read that one first, and then flip back to the quote unquote present day. I don't know. I feel like there's kind of, you know, I, I almost imagine the writers or, you know, the writer and the editor kind of sitting down trying to figure that out because there's kind of pros and cons in both uh, columns for that. Uh, you know, first of all, the way the story goes is, you know, they kind of figure things out on Deep Space Nine, who's behind all this and and what her plan is. And then we get to go and see you know, her life leading up to that moment and the motivations behind that and that sort of thing. So, you know, I can see them kind of going that direction for that reason to kind of get the introduction and then the kind of backstory. Um, But the problem with that is, you know, just when the present day story gets going, and let's be honest, the part of the story we're really interested in because we want to see the plot move forward and we want to see what happens next just when it's getting good, you get a big pause button and then, a, <laughs> you know, an equally long, an equal in length backstory for this character that just kind of brings us back up to the same moment in time so that we don't get any forward momentum on the story throughout the entire last half of the book, which when you're reading it is pretty frustrating you know, as much as I enjoyed the backstory part of the book, you're constantly wanting to know well, what what happens next. What's 
you know, okay, so they figured things out. They figured out that, you know, she's going to go to the mirror universe and, and whatever, but then what happens? You know, what what are we going to do from here? And it's really frustrating that it stops there. Well, and that's for me why I was kind of thinking maybe it would have been better for them to have let the cat out of the bag or the Cardassian out of the bag. <laughs> um, who was behind all this in the last book? Right. So that you could start this story with her backstory and then move into the present day so that when you're finishing the book, you're like, oh my God, I can't wait to get, you know, to the, the exactly, next book to yeah. Soki. It, it feels like the flow would have been better there and you wouldn't have been left with, I think we both felt, which was, I I don't, I mean, I this is kind of helpful. And I, I mean, this, but it's, it's, it's almost like they're giving you the backstory of a Bond villain. <laughs> I don't really care yeah. what happens in your past that made you want to annihilate millions of people and all of that. It, no matter what your sob story is, it still doesn't justify what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and that's kind of the feeling you get with this storyline with Liana Gamora. It's like, it's kind of tragic and not so much tragic and tragic. I mean, it's just like, I, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. it, it does. It, it leaves you with that, that feeling of, but I really just care about how they're going to stop the problem, not just stopping to tell you how the problem came to be. Mm. So, yeah. See, I'm, I'm really glad we get this backstory. Uh, I I think it helps not not understand Gamora's what she's doing so much as you know show what you know led to it and that kind of thing, um, and you know through the backstory you learn that you know the the real you know Gamora's kind of a victim and even though she's doing horrific things, it's not just her that set it in motion. It's you know Gul Dukat and it's. Uh, uh, Entech, her trainer and all this kind of stuff. It was, you know, and all that kind of thing. Um, so I'm glad we get the backstory, but like you, I kind of do wish that it was presented in a different way. I mean, why couldn't we, I know it's just kind of more of the same, but why couldn't you just have a regular story where, you know, maybe every third chapter or something like that, they advance the backstory plot so as you move forward with what's going on in the present day you're concurrently learning the backstory and you know craft the story so that you know revelations about the past kind of echo what's going on in the present and that kind of thing and and move the story forward that way as opposed to this what really amounts to my mind is as kind of a cheap gimmick for a book (laughs) No, I, I'm right there with you, Dan, and I think the frustration is probably felt by just about anybody who reads this book. And I mean, let's just get into it here. We'll we'll answer the question here. How would we have changed this story? And you had an idea of of, and and this is one of the things we were talking about on the other side of the page that. You craft the story, maybe you start in the present day, quote unquote, and then you tell a couple of chapters there, and then you maybe tell a couple of chapters of this Ileana Gamora story, and then you, you know, you flip back and forth in the story without having to actually flip the book. <laughs> and, yeah. and that way, with those two stories running together like that, you're building the suspense in each one because just as something is, is about to be really big, you flip to the next part and then that gets really good and then you flip to the end. So mm-hmm. it, you keep the page turning going, you know? And I think y- your idea is is phenomenal. And I, I really think that they missed the boat of saying, it's kind of fun, this idea that I got to flip the book over, but I'm not five anymore. <laughs> yeah, so exactly you know it's it's not as exciting just to flip it over and feel like i'm getting a new story when when i flip it over it's like but i just want more of the and that's the thing is we always want the concurrent story 
because that's what we're really invested in. I mean, that's what we've been building towards. And mm-hmm. so, and this isn't even a book, say, like the Tarek Noor series, where you were specifically telling the backstory of the Bajoran occupation with the Cardassians and all of that, which that was fantastic. Um, you know, this is only kind of to further, you know, what we we know mm-hmm. uh, about Ileana Gamor and, and fill in those gaps of what actually had happened to the one who had gotten turned into Kira. And we, we you know, even with the episode of Deep Space Nine, we never knew what really happened to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. I feel like you really kind of hit the nail on the head there that, uh, yeah, the getting getting the pages turning and keeping that excitement ramped up would be, you know, a lot better than kind of what we get here. Because that, for me, you know, I really did enjoy both halves of this story quite a bit. But what did kill it for me was the fact that we get half of a book with that story just on pause. And, you know, combining these two stories together for a better kind of reading experience that way, I think would have been a much better play on Pocket Book's part. Well, I wanted to ask you then, okay, so both sides of the story, and we'll do it the way we read it. Present day, what did you end up thinking about this current, think, think, quote unquote, <laughs> current story and in what we kind of find out there? Well, I really, I really enjoyed this story. Um, you know, some of my favorite Deep Space Nine and Star Trek stories in general is, you know, the crew coming together and, and kind of gaming out a, a problem and, and figuring it out and, and following clues and c- trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, we get a lot of that in this first half of the story. Uh, you know, I think of kind of the crew gathered around the the table in ops there, you know, going over what's going on and what do we know and that kind of thing. I, I really enjoy stories like that. Um, again, yeah, the frustration for me comes that, you know, we don't go past that we don't get to see it play out much further than that we just get that kind of initial bit of story and then it's put on pause but yeah the story that we did get i really did enjoy because i love these people i love them coming together and you know kind of moving on from some of the horrific stuff that has happened in the past and really coming back together as a team here was really nice to see Deep Space Niners assemble, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. It, it, I was thinking of when you said that, that when you're reading the story and you get to the end, you know, and this book is really old, guys, so we're going to spoil some stuff. <laughs> um, they, you know, Kira and Vaughn transport to the mirror universe. It reminds me of when Obi-Wan and Anakin and, and Palpatine land in episode three and... Obi-Wan's like, no worry, no worry. We're still flying half a ship. You know, like, <laughs> you got, don't don't worry, don't worry. You still got half a book. Mm-hmm. And that's, that. when you get to that end, that's just, you feel like, but I just want to know what happens next. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, because what I have to say is that for the most part, Olivia Woods really gets the characters right for the most part. And it feels really good. Uh, it feels, it feels snappy. The dialogue, the the pace of the book, everything like that. It, it reminded me of Deep Space Nine in say like the fourth season, almost. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so I I really I really like it. I'm really enjoying it. And then the, the breaks come on, and you flip the book, and 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 so. This first part, I think, is such a great setup because the story is you have to really be paying attention because it's a little confusing. She's throwing a lot of stuff at you Mm -hmm. and she's connecting a lot of these strange dots that come from Deep Space Nine and pulling those all together to create. You know, you know, like those old 3D pictures you'd have to stare at for a long time (laughs) so that then the other picture popped out. That's how this book feels, where it brings all that stuff together. And you're like, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it stops. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's a good first part of the story. I have no problems with it, and and I think it works, you know, really well. So, mm-hmm. when you flipped the book over and got Ileana Gamora's backstory, 
How did you feel about that? Okay. So, yeah, I'm kind of trying to separate here what I thought of the actual story and the kind of <sighs> disappointment I felt that we weren't getting a continuation here. And, and you know, I'll, I'll admit to it, my impatience in wanting to continue on with it. Uh, I really... I, I enjoyed a lot about how um, Olivia Woods was able to tie in Ileana's back, backstory with uh, kind of what was happening throughout the seven seasons of Deep Space Nine and even before that during the occupation and that kind of thing. Um, and boy, <laughs> there's one thing that I, I wrote down while I was reading this, and that was, you know, if you thought Gul Dukat was a monster before reading this book, wow, you just have no idea. Like, and and it was really, you know, I think of some of those Deep Space Nine episodes, for example, where Dukat kind of almost seems like one of the good guys. So he's flying around with Cisco, helping him figure out that, you know, the Maquis have formed and become a thing. And, you know, there's kind of those few seasons in there where, you know, he's kind of the happy-go-lucky Gul Dukat that isn't really that much of a villain and sends up fireworks when Jake and his dad manage to get to Cardassia and a Bajoran light ship. But, you know, even during all of that time, he's got this secret dungeon where he's torturing this woman who looks like Kira Norris, you know, and it's just, it is dark. <laughs> like, I was reading this and wow, it just, every time, like, the kind of uh, monstrosities that, that Ducat perpetrates here, it's it's not for the faint of heart. He is the ultimate Star Trek monster when it comes to villain. Like, he is the biggest egomaniacal maniac. And I think it's really brought home in that he had created this whole place to come back to where he could rejuvenate himself. Ugh. And what... What became of that place was a place basically he just tortures and rapes this girl that looks like Kira. It is... It's unspeakable. Like, right. <laughs> I, I've never seen a Star Trek story get this dark, and it's it's so disturbing. So, mm -hmm. um... It was interesting, the part of her backstory, um though watching her and her you know her betrothed descend into the fanaticism and and buying it into and buying into something that they didn't believe in before because of their circumstances not actually because that's really what they believe you know this mm -hmm. is really a book this is really a book where the story is about allowing circumstance to change your opinion for the worst hmm, yeah. and because you know especially her her fiance you know he goes to Bajor not really completely believing in all this but you know day in and day out he sees all these attacks or whatever and it hardens him to the plight of what they're actually doing to the Bajoran people you mm -hmm. know so it's just really interesting the way that this story is is dealing with all these issues and honestly giving us a picture that, you know, experience doesn't always make truth. It often doesn't lead to it at all. It often can cloud it and mm. destroy it if, if that's what we're solely driven by. So it, that part of this was really fascinating to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of, it's all about perspective, right? I mean, you know, the Bajorans have their perspective of, of what the occupation was about and, and, you know, how the Cardassians treated Bajor. And the Cardassians have their perspective, which in a lot of ways is very carefully molded by the state to look a certain way. Um, you know, whether you're in the middle of it or not, you have, you know, the way that you see the occupation based upon 
how the what the government wants you to see and what the government wants you to think. And the Cardassians, they're such a, a totalitarian state that you wouldn't dare think outside those parameters. You know, it's it's beyond the point of just not acting outside the parameters. You don't want to think outside those parameters because A, everything's so carefully crafted to make you think that way. And B, if you don't think that way, then of course the Obsidian Order will pay you a visit. And uh, nobody wants that. <laughs> Well, and this is where the, the whole idea of fanning the flames of fanaticism really come in, is that the Cardassians truly are the Nazi-style state of Star Trek. Mm. And, you know, like you said, they, they've crafted this whole society from the very beginning to indoctrinate people with this you know, love of the state as almost as if it was God, like a God, mm-hmm. that it can do no wrong and, and our lives are only here to serve the state. And the argument is is because it's for the it's for our survival. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is how we survive as a race is is we do all things for the state. And we don't question it. We just have the gumption to keep going. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, and it is it's frightening when when you know you think and you move towards what that means for when you look around our world today and you see those same kind of things popping up in different regions of the world and mm-hmm. even closer to home it, it's frightening and so this is what a, this really it did it made for a very interesting um read and you know specifically watching Ileana how the order capitalizes on her pain mm-hmm. you know it, it's been said never read a good tragedy go to waste <laughs> and yeah. that's exactly what the order does you know they're the worst of of this cardassian order in taking advantage of people and and making them their own and it's just uh gives you the chills when mm-hmm. you think about it because it is exactly what you read about, say, like Nazi Germany or um, uh, Stalin's uh, Russia or these kind of things. This is the kind of state that people lived in. And, well, it it still happens today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was honestly, like for all of the, the horrible things that we get later on, that was one of the most frightening things in this story to me was was how expertly the Obsidian Order was able to manipulate things around Ileana and and manipulate her perceptions to really get her on their side and um yeah like a yeah like how expertly they did that and how even as you're reading it some of what they say starts to sound reasonable <laughs> and then you go wait a minute no this is the obsidian order and this is what they want to do that's horrible and uh you know, Olivia Woods really was able to craft the story in such a way that like the Obsidian Order really is insidious and they get inside her head and you're kind of right there along with her. And uh, it's, it is really, really scary. Um, one thing I have to say is uh, uh, Olivia Woods, sometimes it's really scary seeing a new name on a Star Trek novel that you've never seen before. And I hadn't seen Olivia Wood's name on, on any novels uh, before this one in the soul key. And I have to say, I was really impressed by how well she captured the characters here and how well she crafted this story with a lot of original characters uh, for the second half as well. So uh, props to her. Uh, I thought she really got the tone of deep space nine really well here. She definitely got the dark tone, um, because <laughs> especially in this this flip side story with Ileana Gamora, it is freaky. So, uh, yeah, we just had Halloween, and this is definitely a <laughs> Hannibal like terrible Manson type story. It's just it's horrible. So yeah, and and the um, really creepy stuff, the uh Entech and and their training together. I got really creeped out by that guy. And yeah, there's some oh man. Yeah, just skin crawling stuff in this story. Dan, there's one thing that we didn't mention about the present day story in that this it begins, the whole book begins with Cisco 
in the celestial temple with the rest of the prophets and all the different all well not all of them but many of the different emissaries the ben siscos from the different multiverse so basically the 52 emissaries from the multiverse join together it's like a dc comic thing it's it's (laughs) like the multiverse has come to visit deep space nine but anyway so yeah it, it really starts here with this really incredible scene of Cisco with all of these different emissaries talking about an issue that's happening in what we know as the mirror universe because that Cisco hasn't taken up his mantle as the emissary and our Cisco was supposed to have done something about that. Mm-hmm. And it really brought this whole question of is there a free will for Cisco? Like, does he have any free will or you know that was the philosophical question and there was a bigger question that went along with it as well Mm. so yeah (laughs) cisco the emissary and i mean you know this is something we've talked about before for sure uh he's supposed to do something big you know we've got all these emissaries together it's pretty clear they're supposed to be doing something really 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 big and uh yeah, we haven't seen that yet. So, um, and of course, we're not sure if we will see it. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of a scary thought because, yeah, Cisco, that was his whole thing, right? Is he was, he's the emissary and, you know, he's kind of like you said on the other side of the page, he's Bejor's Jesus, right? You know, and he's, that's what he's supposed to be. And, um, I think you and I are both a little worried that we're never going to really see that pay off the way it seems like in this book. They're saying that it's going to pay off. Well, and this is this is the reason is is because it's in black and white on the page. Um, the Cisco of the Intendant's Dimension, Ben realized he was supposed to have been their emissary. That's the only reason any of us exist. Mm hmm said still another counterpart, his uniform and odd amalgam of Starfleet and militia design. I mean, she she lays it out, says, hey, the only reason that Cisco's exist is to be, become the emissary. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who find the celestial temple in every universe and open up the wormhole. All of that revolves around the Cisco. Mm-hmm. And... So yes, in in some ways he kind of is this Bajoran Moses Jesus Messiah type figure, mm-hmm. and I don't know how the Cisco now in the current books that we've been getting that storyline has just been let go, and I will say this: even if Cisco does something amazing in ascendance and like blows us all away, you know, with fire shooting out of his eyeballs. And, you know, (laughs) I mean, because he becomes like Superman or something that still doesn't negate what we were told in this story, which is the only reason they exist is to be the emissary. And I don't think that's a job. It doesn't sound like that ever ends Mm -hmm. because, any of the other religious icons that you read about or know about. I mean, it's it's not like Jesus just gave up his job. He's like, oh, I'm done, you know, after the <laughs> crucifixion. Or, uh, you know, uh, Muhammad, the same thing. I, You know, I, Moses, none of these people, they just let go of, of their responsibilities until death, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I don't see that happening for Cisco. And I'm just, I, I still... I don't know. I'm with you. Are, are we ever going to get that follow-up? Because yeah. it just truly doesn't make sense. Because what Olivia told me here, honestly, I feel like lines up with every other thing that I saw in Deep Space Nine. Mm. This is kind of where I expect this story to go. Especially yeah. if you're going to go through the trouble of bringing him back from the Celestial Temple in the first place. 
it needs to be for a good reason. He even said when he left, you know, there there's still plenty more for me to do, but I have a lot to learn first. Mm. So, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm still really, really holding out hope that, you know, like we said, in Ascendance, you know, there, there's just so much leading up to it that he has something to do with uh, the coming war between Bajor and the Ascendants. And, um, you know, throughout this whole story, he sees the storm coming on the horizon and and he's preparing for the, the coming storm and all this kind of stuff. So, I, you know, I, I really hope he's doing something big in Ascendance and that we just don't know about it yet. Um, and yeah, like you say, after that, it does feel weird that he would say, oh, okay, well, I'm done. And, uh, you know, it's very possible that, you know, we could get many more years of Deep Space Nine novels and Cisco could once again take up the mantle. And I, I sincerely hope that that happens at some point because it is, you know, putting everything else aside, it's it's what makes this character so unique among um, Star Trek captains and Star Trek characters in general is he has this this special quality about him that, you know, he was created by the prophets solely for this job to be the emissary. Uh, and, you know, that that's that's so unique that you hate that to not be a fundamental part of his character going forward. So, yeah, no, I'm on board with you. I I were I in charge, I would <laughs> make that at least a thing that that he has going forward that might be called into action again, you know, at some point kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it just feels like... Um, it feels anticlimactic, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and very much wasted potential, I think, for a, just a phenomenal character, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I want to see more of the emissary stuff. <laughs> here, here. Well, um, Dan, I, what would you rate Fearful Symmetry? You think? Well, uh, you know, there, there's kind of the things that I had qualms about in this book the 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 gimmicky nature of it, and the way the story was presented. However, the story itself I really enjoyed, and I thought was. Uh, very fulfilling to read and very, um, you know, kind of weighs heavily on a lot of what happens and makes this villain not someone that you understand or sympathize with, but someone that you just know more about and can kind of see how this evil was created kind of thing. And for that, I'm, I'm really grateful for the backstory. Uh, I really wish it had been presented a little bit better. There are a lot of little things in this book that I just love that bump up the score a bit for me. I don't know if you caught this, but they were talking about, I think Entech was talking about how there's different people across different races who just look vaguely alike and the yeah. Obsidian Order tracks them down. And especially that one guy, Guldamar, or Guldanar in the military, uh, has so many people across all these races that look like him. <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> Goldenar, of course, was played by Vaughn Armstrong, who has something like 12 different credits in Star Trek, Admiral Forrest in Enterprise probably being his most famous. Uh, so I thought when I read that, I just grinned like that. That was clever. That was really cool. So there's there's all kinds of little things like this that that show Olivia knows her Star Trek and has put together a really interesting story here. Again, it does lose a little from the formatting and the and the presentation here, but I would still give it. I would say f- three and a half book flips out of five. That's generous, um, and you know, for me, as good as some of the things were, because of the the way that it's formatted, I'm I can only. I can only go with um, two and a half Cardassian lookalikes. Unfortunately, it's just it's just unfulfilling, and I think that's the thing. You mm-hmm. know, it, you read the book and you feel frustrated and, and not excited for the next one, and and I don't think that that should happen in a story. So, 
Uh, that's not necessarily a knock on Olivia Woods, though, who we both have praised for the way that she did craft a lot of the story. And I think more of this was just she was stuck with a format that she didn't get to control. And so luckily we haven't seen any of this, you know, again in Star Trek books. So <laughs> I don't think it'll be an issue there. But um, yeah, I'm excited to actually, you know, get on to Soul Key and, and wrap up this mirror universe part so that we can get to ascendance in january uh that's pretty exciting to kind of finally be coming to the end of uh the end of this odyssey really you know and i can remember you know ages ago just being a listener of literary treks and uh hearing your guys episode about avatar starting out the deep space nine relaunch and, you know, how long it's been since then that we're finally coming up to the soul key now. Uh, it's really exciting, and I'm really glad to have been a part of it. Well, Dan, that was, I think it was a great conversation. You know, we got to talk through a lot of different things about this story. And, you know, even though the ratings were lower, I, I think we got some great conversation out of the book. And, and that is always a fun thing. Um I wanted to ask you, you know, we had some news about Star Trek getting a brand new series. And I wanted to approach this purely from the standpoint of the novels, because that's our show. And ask you, so if this does take place sometime in the Prime Universe, you know, how could this affect this the way that the Star Trek novels are written? Because obviously there is a ton of continuity now, and... None of this is canon, mm. but, you know, for 10 years, the books have had full run of everything that happens in the Prime Universe, and I just kind of wanted to ask you about what you thought of with the new show coming in and how that might affect what we're getting from pocketbooks with the Star Trek novels. Mm -hmm. Well, Matthew, yeah, if if the new series does take place in the prime universe and depending on when it takes place in the timeline, it's possible that, uh, you know, a lot of the ongoing series, especially the shared continuity of, you know, the next generation post nemesis era continuity there could, uh, be kind of invalidated, I guess, by, uh, what would be on screen, which of course would be canon. Now, I'm not using the language that a lot of uh, Star Trek readers have used, which is, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that continuity will be wiped out by, <laughs> you know, a new series. And and this always kind of bugs me a little bit when people talk about, um, you know, canon superseding uh, tie-in fiction and that sort of thing. You know, Disney did a thing with with Star Wars, which basically decanonized a lot of novels, but they weren't wiped out. Those stories are still there and you can still enjoy them. And I personally think it doesn't take away from them to say, well, we're doing the story in a different direction now. That said, uh, even though I would still enjoy those stories, it would be sad that if that 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 continuity might have to come to an end if uh, a new series were to supersede it and it wouldn't continue forward. So that would be very sad to me because I really enjoy the pocketbooks shared continuity there uh, among the among the series. Um, do I think that's likely? I, I don't know. I feel like this will probably, I mean, again, this is just gut feeling not based on anything, but I feel like it would probably be, if not the J.J. Abrams universe, at least, you know, kind of an alternate Star Trek universe type thing. Um, so I think we're safe in that area. But if that were to happen, I would be really sad to see those stories come to an end. You know, I, I don't really. I don't know. I, I think I don't really have a comment yet because I don't know when this series will take place. Mm -hmm. and, and until then, I, I have no idea how it's going to affect or if it will affect. Right. So, you know, and until then, I, I'll worry about it then. But like Star Wars, eh, the the difference, though, but unlike Star Wars, the difference with Trek books, if we've never been considered canon or anywhere maybe even close to canon or possibly canon or maybe can't I mean, there's never been a question 
And so I've always just enjoyed the stories for what they were, which were furthers adventures of characters that I like. It has just been different for the last 10 years because it we haven't had to deal with any prime universe whatsoever. And we, we still might not have to. I mean, mm-hmm. even if they do prime universe, it could take place in like a 25th century or, you know, it could play, uh, you know, there's so many different areas that they could go in anyway. So, yeah, we'll worry about it then when it happens, and and even when it happens, and if the announcement comes, it's in the prime universe. Uh, I'm I'm not going to be worried. You can't take away what the uh, the authors have written, and uh, I really enjoy the story. So, yeah, I don't think it's anything to worry about. I think it's a time for Star Trek fans to be excited that Trek is coming back as a serialized series again. Mm-hmm. That it's going to be in a TV format and not in you know, just a movie every three years, four years. So yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah. Above all else. I mean, obviously really, really, really jazzed to have Star Trek back in that format again. So yeah, putting everything else aside, that's the main takeaway. (laughs) Well, if you would like to uh, catch up with us and talk to us uh, in our listeners only discussion group, we'd love to hear what you're having to say. I mean, we are talking about this brand new series all over the network with we just had a Ready Room come out with Larry Nemechek and Chris, and then we did a Hyper Channel with Chris and me and Mike Schindler and Norman Lau. Had a great time talking about this. So we're also discussing it at length in the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group. So if you type Babel into the search field on Facebook or click Discussion on the menu bar at Trek FM, and we'll make sure that you are let into that private group there and be able to discuss all the things we're discussing there on the Babel Conference. And of course, don't forget about the Goodreads group. Um, We've got all the bookshelves there telling you what's coming up specifically. I'm really excited about this. I loaded up the What We're Reading Right Now books all the way through the end of the year. So you know what's coming up here on Literary Treks all the way through December. We've got all the books we have read before and great discussions going on there as well. So you could find that on our show pages uh, with the link there for Goodreads, or you can go to Goodreads and type in Literary Treks, and you'll be able to find that group. Really want to thank our associate producers who, through Patreon, make sure that this show comes to you each week. We've got Will Wynn, Ken Tripp, Brandon Shea, Matula, and Bruce Gibson. All of these guys are fantastic, and they've gone to Patreon and supported us to make sure that Literary Treks comes to you each week. Now, Patreon is the way that listeners can support the network and make sure that we have the opportunity to bring this quality content to you each week without lots of ads or interruptions or anything like that. Just great sounding content and a lot of fun. And we do that through these amazing people who support us every month on patreon.com slash trekfm. And we love giving back to you because we've got the Patreon Zone where you can get lots of fun, free things, listen to shows exclusively and early. We've also got the Patreon Roundtable. All of those things are available for you through patreon.com slash trekfm. So see how you can support the network today. Now, Dan, when you're not in some exclusive meeting in the Celestial Temple with every version of yourself throughout the multiverse, where can we find you? Oh man, you know, the uh, the Dan Gunther from the alternate universe where Starfleet is an empire. That guy's kind of a jerk. Um, but yeah, no. When I- <laughs> <laughs> Did you smack him one? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wanted to, but then I felt kind of weird about it. I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, when I'm not there, you can find me online. Uh, my website is uh, treklet.com, and there I review Star Trek novels, bold, both old and new. Of course, including the one we talked about today, Fearful Symmetry. Uh, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash treklet.reviews, and on Twitter at treklet.reviews, and my personal Twitter feed, which is at kurtrats. And of course, I am also on Instagram, and my username there is kurtrats47. And you can find me kicking around the uh, Babel Conference on Facebook as well. 
And Matthew, when you're not joining the rest of the Deep Space Nine crew and trying to investigate what the heck is going on in the mirror universe there, uh, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02, trying to fight the rest of my multiverse counterparts uh, for Twitter supremacy. You can also find me on Instagram, where I post pictures. Uh, luckily... The pictures from the multiverse don't really show up on Earth Instagram, so that's good. Um, you can also find me doing the orb with Christopher Jones where we talk all about Deep Space Nine. You can find me doing the 602 Club where we talk about all things geeky but aren't necessarily related to Star Trek. And gosh, I got to say, we have such a fun time on that show, especially right now as we're working our way uh, to Spectre. By the time this comes out, it will already be at Spectre, and uh, we'll have talked about Skyfall, so check that out. And you can also find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.